uh, to use. Hello? Hello? Are we... Hello? We get... Hello? Dr. Cherio, I lost yes. you. I'm, I can hear you. I can hear you. I think you might have come back in. Hello? Hello? Oh, I can hear you now. I don't know what happened. This episode of Mental Illness and Me is a continuation of last week's discussion with Dr. Kevin Terrio. Please remember that this is not to be interpreted as mental health counseling. I've talked to many people on the podcast who were dealing with symptoms of mental health disorders as children, as teenagers, and some of them have talked about being misdiagnosed and really going through a lot to finally arrive at the correct diagnosis. Do you find that children and teens are misdiagnosed a lot or sometimes prematurely diagnosed with a mental disorder that really is due to some other factor? Well, my simple answer to your question would be yes. <laughs> and, and again, the thing that gets to be so interesting when we talk about diagnoses is and especially with reference to uh, children and adolescents, is it's it's an art form. I mean, we guess a lot, and you, of course, want to have a good guesser. <laughs> and that's where I get into, I want somebody that has a few years of experience if I'm going to be taking my child to them. Because it is hard to diagnose. And, you know, we have the... Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, I think it's in its fifth revision right now. It's extremely rare when a child fits perfectly into any diagnostic category. It's extremely rare when an adult fits perfectly into a diagnostic category. We have them to try and guide us uh, in knowing the correct interventions and medications and that kind of thing. But diagnosing is is somewhat of an art form when it comes to children. Uh, you have to take into consideration certain developmental factors. For instance, studies have been showing that the frontal cortex, or where we make all our executive functioning decisions or moral decisions, really doesn't mature fully until the late 20s. And so, you know, I'm I'm anyone who's raised an adolescent child uh, typically has seen them do some pretty crazy things. <laughs> and you'll, you'll look at your child and you'll go, what were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, the child was thinking, it's just that their whole brain wasn't online yet. You know, it takes a while for that to happen. And, <laughs> um, and as a therapist, you have to, of course, take that developmental that incremental development in the brain into consideration, you know, when you're making certain uh, diagnoses. But you can underdiagnose a child, you can overdiagnose a child, uh, and both can be uh, equally bad. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, there are so many different factors that go in. To, to diagnoses. And as a school teacher, you'll appreciate this. I've talked to numerous school teachers. My sister was a school teacher, taught first grade. And I asked her the question. I said, can you tell the children, you know, without actually knowing, can you 
tell which children are currently living with both biologic parents in a happy marriage, can you differentiate those from the children who are currently being raised by uh, a single mom or dad? And she said, with a high level of accuracy. Now, my hat goes off to single parents, and, and I know the majority of them are, are doing everything they know how to do to help their children grow and develop. But the research is very clear that children that can grow up with both biologic parents in a stable family relationship exceed the children that aren't in that kind of family structure uh, a huge percentage of the time. And when you're diagnosing children, you have to take that into consideration as well. You know, what is the child uh, dealing with uh, in their family of origin? You know, they may be depressed, but they may be depressed for a reason. And it, you know, they, they may not need medication. What they may need is uh, a more uh, robust support system. So I, I hope I'm, I'm getting at the, the question that you're asking uh, when it comes to overdiagnosing or underdiagnosing or not providing any service to a child. Uh, whenever the child, again, I'm going to go back to the first part where I listed off a series of criteria as to whether or not your child might need help. If your child is displaying, you know, a number of those criteria, then you really do want to sit down with a mental health professional and just ask the question, do you think my child needs help? And I like what you had to say about differentiating sort of a, a biological factor, like, you know, maybe depression runs in the family and they may need some medication to help, or maybe there is something going on that is, the, in their circumstances that would require some help with a mental professional, but, but possibly not medication. Because I wonder if sometimes uh, we jump to that conclusion too often that they may need medication. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I am curious if that's the case. Here, I would, I would say that, uh, you know, you can err on not giving it. You can err on giving it. Uh, you know, for instance, there are certain diagnoses like ADHD, where uh, the child is going to display the behavior at home, at school, at play. Uh, they're either going to be hyperactive type, inattentive type, combined type. Uh, but it's pretty easy to spot uh, an ADHD child. Um, and you know the there in my opinion, and again, I, I preface it as such, the thing that you really want to strongly consider is that the best intervention is a combination of medication uh, and therapy, not necessarily for the child, but to teach the parents certain interventive techniques that they can use in the home uh, to help the child modify their behavior. Whereas there are other things that I'm going to be much more cautious on when it comes to uh, medication. Now, I'm not a prescriber, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, if the parent were to say to me, gee, you know, should we be giving my 10-year-old child uh, an antidepressant? I'm going to say, let's try some other things first. 
to see if we can't uh, alleviate the depressive symptoms. Now, again, you have to couch that in the context of how severe is the depression. If the child is uh, suicidal or self-injuring, I might, uh, you know, consider medication. Um, but, uh, you know, each, each situation is so unique. It's kind of a hard question to, to address, really. Right. I understand that. And actually, I'm a... I'm a big fan of medication just because it has completely changed my life. Um, just suffering from OCD and it's definitely in my family DNA. And so it has made a world of difference for me. So I'm, I'm not anti-medication, but I think sometimes we, we want to be cautious. Yeah. And also you want to do what you said and combine it with learning strategies, because I will say right now that the medication alone was not enough to help put me in a place where I could have a healthy functioning relationship. I had to have some serious therapy and techniques and strategies to help me learn how to manage because the medication can't solve everything. Yeah, absolutely agree. So tell me a little about what is beneficial about having a diagnosis for your child or teenager in terms of help and services that they could receive. Uh, Let's start there. Well, you know, once the child has a diagnosis, then uh, the school system can kick in and provide additional helps. Uh, the parents can learn certain techniques to help the child uh, cope with or deal with anxiety or depression or that kind of, you know, whatever the diagnosis might be. A lot of help can be rallied around the child uh, once the child has a diagnosis. However, I would also suggest that um, sometimes if you misdiagnose a child, uh, then you give them a label that can follow them uh, in through their childhood and into their adult life. And uh, it can limit uh, sometimes the things that they uh, can do or get to do. And the, the parent and or the system, school system, other systems, Uh, can be providing help that really might not be helpful or in the worst case scenario might actually hinder uh, the child's development. So we have to be, again, very cautious, very careful uh, to make sure that we're not underdiagnosing or overdiagnosing, undertreating or overtreating. And and again, it's oftentimes it's... uh, kind of an incremental thing um, as, you know, we're working with children uh, and trying to provide the help and assistance that they need. Wow. It seems so terrifying as a parent. (laughs) There's so many things you could do wrong. It's just sort of a, a scary thing, but that's the reality is that we make mistakes and we just have to do our very best, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, you know, um, it's interesting, uh, before my oldest child was uh, seven or eight years old, uh, I knew a lot about parenting. Once I'd gotten through my last adolescent, I was humbled to an extreme extent. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you'll notice that, uh, you know, when you're in a, a social setting and the topic of parenting comes up, uh, 
those who have no children or young children uh, seem to be the ones who are speaking up as the experts, uh, while people my age are sitting back kind of quiet. Uh, and, you know, if they're going to say anything, they're going to go, I have nothing but empathy for you. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, I have five children. Four of them probably could have been raised in an orphanage and they would have turned out just fine. <laughs> uh, but one of mine gave me a major run for my money. And I'm thrilled to say today that they are doing just fine. Okay. But uh, they actually had a mental health disorder that needed medication. And you would think that you know, the mental health guy would be able to see that, but sometimes can't see the forest for the trees when it's your own child. And so it took a while uh, for us to figure all of that out. Um, but I will say that that child taught me more about parenting and about being a mental health professional than my other four did combined. And I am uh, thrilled for that experience and and literally thank God for the things that it taught me uh, when it comes to being empathetic with parents that struggle with difficult children. Um, you know, sometimes we think it's all about parenting, but I am here to tell you that in my opinion, kids come with personalities and uh, some kids you really can have a big impact on and other kids are good. They're either going to be really good or really bad in spite of you uh, and, and your parenting. And it's, you know, again, as parents, our prime directive is help them reach their maximum potential. But I am here to say that potential is different in every child. Right. And I, I guess what I'm hearing a little bit is that as a parent, maybe the most important thing is to be humble, first of all, and to recognize that you may need some help and also to be perhaps observant of your child and what is going on in their surroundings and their behavior and that kind of thing. And then also be open to possibilities of receiving some outside help or um, even just consulting with somebody who could help give you another perspective. Does that sound? Oh, absolutely. Right? And again, I would um, say that it doesn't always have to be a mental health professional. Grandparents are sometimes wonderful sources of information and help. Uh, extended family, um, clergy, uh, your, your uh, pediatrician, all of these people are people that you can talk to um, and you want to plug into as many resources as you can as a parent in trying to help your child. Well, if you could sit down with a teenager now and give them your best advice based on all the experience you've had, what would you tell them? Life isn't fair. Get used to it. What you will achieve is 10% native talent or ability and 90% work. Get used to hard work. You cannot have things and freedom. The more things you have, the less freedom you have. Pick carefully the things you want in your life. 
and last, uh, you will fail many times. You will experience adversity in many forms. Learn compassion for others from each and every one of those experiences because that's where you will find your richest source of happiness and, and meaning in life is by being able to reach out and help others who are going through difficult times uh, and you really gain that compassion by going through difficult times yourself. Not that you want to create difficult times for yourself. You won't have to. They'll come to you. Uh, but when you do, remember how you feel. And especially remember when someone else reaches out to you in a compassionate, caring manner. Uh, and, and helps you through your difficult time, pay it forward. So that's that would be what I would tell teenagers today. So what do you mean by you can't have things and freedom? Do you mean things like family or marriage or what kind of things do you mean? Yes. Cars? <laughs> yeah, what I, you know, with my own children, I would, uh, one of my uh, field trips would be down to the homeless shelter. And we would park out front, and after a few minutes, they would look at me and say, why are we here? And I would look at them and say, you've never been here before, have you? And they would say, no. Uh, and I said, do you know why you've never been here? And they would say, no. And I would say, you're looking at him. I'm the reason you've never been here, because... I have never wanted you to be here. Uh, I want to uh, make sure that uh, I work hard, that I give it my all, so that uh, you don't ever have to come here. I said, once you turn 18, you get to decide whether you want to be here or not. And I'd point to somebody that had a shopping cart with all their worldly belongings in it. And I would look at that person and I would say, do you see that person over there? They are the freest person maybe in this community right now because they don't have to answer to anybody. They can go where they want. They can do what they want. Uh, and they're free. I said, the more things you choose to have in your life, the more of your freedom you give up. I said, I choose to have you in my life. And when I made that choice, I gave up certain freedoms, like deciding whether I'm going to go to work in the morning. When I chose to have you in my life, I made a decision to go to work every morning so that you wouldn't be here. If you choose good things, that's wonderful. And and I look at you and I say, you are a good thing. And I love having you in my life. And I am willing to give up freedom because I want you in my life. And I want to have a relationship with you and your siblings and your mother. I said, but if you get too many things, you give up freedom with each one of them. And if I buy that fancy red Ferrari that you know I love, I'm going to have to work three jobs to pay for that 
and have you in my life. But suddenly, I don't have as much of you in my life because now I have to work too hard <laughs> and too many hours and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so, you know, to, to answer your question, uh, pick the things carefully that you want to give up your freedom for. Okay, now let's say you could sit down and talk with any parent of a teenager or any child, really. What would you say to them? Parents of teenagers, I would say, hang on. <laughs> Just hang on. The vast majority of them turn out great, uh, especially if they have you in their life. Try not to buffer too many consequences. You know, I have a, a football metaphor that I share with parents oftentimes, uh, American football. I say, from zero to eight years old, you are the quarterback of your child's team. You run the plays. When they do right, you pat them on the helmet. When they do wrong, you slap them upside the helmet, uh, and you run the play again. At age eight, God shows up on the field. He takes the ball away from you, hands it to your child, and marches you off to the side of the field and hands you a clipboard. You are now the child's coach. The child is the quarterback of their own team. Ideally, the quarterback runs over to the coach before every play and says, what do you think I should run here, coach? And the coach calls the play and the kid runs out on the field and runs the play. Uh, until they get to be about 13, 15 years old, and they start calling audibles out on the field. And you're sitting there on the sideline tearing your hair out as the coach going, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, you're throwing your clipboard down and screaming at them, which, of course, does not encourage them to come back over to you. <laughs> you need to maintain your composure uh, and try and, teach them, don't be calling audibles, and did you learn from that last call, and blah, 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 blah. That goes on until the, your child turns 18, at which time the state shows up, takes your clipboard away, marches you down to the end of the field, and hands you two pom-poms. <laughs> and now you are the child's cheerleader. Now, the job description of a cheerleader is very clear. You cheer. Go, team, go. And it doesn't matter if your team's losing 100 to nothing. It's still go, team, go. Your child runs over to you as the cheerleader and says, what do you think I should run here? You look at them and go, I'm a cheerleader. I'm not your coach anymore. And they go, well, I don't need a cheerleader. I need a coach. And it's like, well, you know what? I've got one. Uh, his name is God. And uh, <laughs> I, I run my own game on another field. I check in with him all the you know, all day long, morning, noon, and night. He calls some interesting plays sometimes. I think he's crazy, but nonetheless, you know, I've learned to run the play <laughs> he calls. And uh, and he's taken new he's taken new quarterbacks. Why don't you give him a call and see if he'll coach you? I have a feeling he'll gladly accept the job. And they go, I don't want God. I don't want a cheerleader. I want you. And I look at him and go, well, what play do you think I would call given this situation? And my child can usually give the lecture better than I ever could. And <laughs> they look and I look at them and I go, that sounds like great advice. And they look at me and go, I knew you'd say that. And they stomp off. But the, um, 
it gets worse because uh, once your child starts having children, then they take your pom-poms away and you march you up into the stands and you're a fan. Now, ideally, you're a good fan, okay? Always cheering for your team, always interested in the game, but you have so little power <laughs> sitting up there in the stands that you try and do what you can to cheer your team on. Now, whether you're a cheerleader or a fan, there are two rules that you have to pay attention to. Number one, if you ain't got nothing good to say, don't say nothing. And number two, if they want your advice, they'll ask for it. Now, again, I have five adult children. Those are the hardest two rules in the world. And yet, when I abide by those two rules, my relationship with my adult children and, and their spouses are, is so much better. Uh, and when I forget those two rules, I regret it. So if I could talk to parents, that's, that would be what I would tell them. That is brilliant. Did you come up with that? I think so. You got to <laughs> copyright that, man. That is incredible. The other thing I would mention before we end when it comes to therapy I would never, never is a big word, okay, but I would never send my child to a therapist that I hadn't personally interviewed myself. I would pay for the first appointment or two, if it took two, to sit down with that therapist to make sure that they had the same or similar values that I do, that I felt that they were competent uh, that they had a good grasp, a good working knowledge of the issue that I wanted them to address with my child. Um, and I would make sure that they were open to receiving information from me. In other words, I understand that the therapist may have to keep what the child shares with them confidential, but that does not mean that the therapist cannot receive information from the parent. In fact, I would want a therapist that would welcome that information, that if I sent them a, a text or an email saying, I want you to know that, you know, Johnny came home from your last appointment and was so excited and positive, or Johnny came home from your last appointment and was sullen and uh, disrespectful, I would want that kind of feedback from those parents uh, as a therapist. And as a parent, if the therapist said, no, I can't receive any information from you, that, that would end the session right there as far as I was concerned. Dr. Terrio, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and for sharing so many helpful tips for parents, for teenagers. It's been fabulous. I, I have enjoyed this. I hope that there's some helpful information for your audience. The goal of Mental Illness and Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness and Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness and Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.